Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. We know that running a small firm is tough and ending the year with a profit may be even tougher. That's why we created Profit for Small Firm Architects. It's a three-module digital course and it's available to you for free right now by visiting entrearchitect.com slash free course. Entree Architect Podcast, episode 130. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm whether you're in the process of launching a startup or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. In this episode, our first of the month of July 2016, we're shifting our focus away from technology, the topic that we've been focused on all month long in June. So if you're interested in technology and how it uh, can affect the, your business and how to succeed in business using technology, go back to the episodes all through June of 2016 because the next business focus in July of 2016 is management. So how do we build and run a successful business? How do we build the right systems? How do we build the right team? How do we efficiently and effectively do what we do as architects in the most profitable way? That is what we're going to be talking about all month long here on the podcast and everywhere else on the Entree Architect platform, on the blog, on the newsletter, all through social media. We're going to be talking about management. 
And this week, I invited a young architect from Boston to join me here on the podcast because he has a very interesting story to share. While attending architecture school in Boston, he took a position with a local design build firm and found himself unexpectedly the owner of that firm just three years later. We spoke about how he focused on the firm's brand, how he restructured the company as an employee-owned cooperative, how he offered services exclusively based on passive house and sustainable practice, how he launched into design and real estate development, and how he plans to take his firm to national recognition. This week at Entree Architect Podcast, I'm speaking with architect Declan Keefe of Place Taylor about how to build a successful architecture firm that works. This episode of the Entree Architect Podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, the easiest way to send invoices, manage expenses, and track your time. Learn more at freshbooks.com slash architect. Declan Keefe, welcome to the Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great having you here. Um, one of our uh, mutual friends, Marilyn Modinger, in, uh, introduced us. Uh, Marilyn's a, a, a member of Entree Architect as well as a facilitator. She's uh, been very involved in what we're doing over there. And I put out a call for interesting people in architecture, and your name immediately was responded to by Marilyn uh, and said we need to connect. So welcome to the show, and, I, and uh, I'm glad you're here. I'll try to live up to Marilyn's comments. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you will. Um, like uh, most episodes, I'd love to start with your origin story. Talk about when you discovered architecture and, and why you decided to take this journey to become an architect. Uh, talk about that journey and, and talk a little bit about what you do today. Sure. So I, I definitely didn't have the I grew up wanting to be an architect story. Um, I was actually focused on photography largely um, and ended up going to the Boston uh, School of Fine Arts uh, for photography. And um, I did about a year there and realized that I didn't want to do the, the fine arts life. I, I didn't want that struggle and I didn't really like the idea that you could be as, as competent, proficient, and even amazingly creative and still just be at the whims of uh, the, the artistic world, which is unpredictable. And so it was really from there I, I thought, you know, well, what, what can mix the creative passion that I have with the fine arts and also the maths and the sciences that I felt like I was missing of just to sort of keep a well-rounded um, life and career path. And so it was really there where I stumbled upon the idea of architecture. And at the time, I had sort of expanded beyond my photography, and I was doing sculpture and film and just about, you know, any class I could take. I was, like, doubling my course load at the fine arts school. And, and I started to think about the idea of architecture as large-scale occupiable sculpture. Um, and that was more of a way to convince myself that it was okay to transition from fine arts <laughs> into architecture um, and not that I was copping out of my creative uh, path. And so then I, uh, I went down the architecture path. and how, um, how far into the fine arts path were you before you made that transition? So I, was, I just did a, a year and a half at, at the, um, 
Boston School of Fine Arts, and um, it was a great transition. It turned out I sort of immediately fell in love with uh, the architecture um, education, but even more so, I uh, I went to the Boston Architectural College, and my first year I did just academics. They have a, a system that's set up where you can do academics only, but then that school transitions where you work while you're in school. And that was really when it sort of took off for me is when I started to work. And I um, was actually looking to find a job in construction first. I've got a, uh, a long list of relatives who are in construction who sort of do the traditional poo-pooing of the <laughs> architecture profession. And I was going to show them that there's a way to do both, uh, yeah. which actually plays in very much to my, my longer-term story. Um, what ended up happening was I didn't find a job in construction. I found a job uh, with this uh, newly formed company at the time called Place Taylor. And Place Taylor was essentially trying to buck the trend and say, we're going to do both architecture and construction together. And it's not just going to be that we have an architecture company and we have a, a, a construction company and they talk to each other, but rather that everyone in the team is going to both be a designer and a builder. Um, and so you have to, in order to be part of the team, you have to come in with sort of the understanding and the, you know, some base skill set of being able to do both. And how, how long was Place Taylor around when you, when you started uh, working there? Uh, it wasn't around at all. I okay. started, uh, I was, I was not one of the founders though. I was a founding employee. So one of the first five that was hired, um, and started from essentially day one. So you were hired to start the firm. Hired, yep. Hired yeah, starting firm, okay. so and it was, I. It was a startup. It was a startup. It technically it was founded in January of 2008. We didn't really start doing work until uh, June of 2008, and so there was six months where nothing really happened except Simon Hare, who was the founder. He you know created a basic website and did some branding and and bought a piece of land, which would be his house, which would start the company as many architecture firms have started. Um, and so I was by far the least experienced and skilled <laughs> on the team, and I, which resulted in you know, me being a laborer largely, uh, both in architecture, drawing up details, as well as um, labor in the field, literally. And that was, that was first year in school? So I had finished my first year. This was sort of at the beginning of my second year in school. Yeah. I started up with this company. And that's really the launch of sort of the beginning of where my career is still, I'm, I'm still with place Taylor. Um, and currently an owner, currently an owner. Um, so it, it actually progressed very quickly. <laughs> um, I was, I was very excited about the work I was doing and, uh, committed both in my academics and in my careers, sort of every waking hour to growing the skills I needed to, because I felt like I was given an opportunity, uh, within this business. And, uh, what, what I, you know, essentially two years in, I was, uh, leading, I was a project manager leading projects and then three years in, uh, for, uh, extenuating circumstances, Simon, who was found, who founded the business, um, let us all know that he would be leaving. And, uh, the question went out, who's, is this business going to keep going? Um, and if so, who would take over? That's so, three and a half years into it. Essentially, yeah, right around there. And 
Um, and we had just really started picking up steam. I, we, we got some great press right off the bat with our first projects, um, which sort of kept us going for a little while, but it was, uh, there was some ups and downs for sure. Um, and ultimately I, I was still in the midst of my schooling. Um, and I said, yeah, so I, I took over the business. Uh, I was the sole owner at the time. We did about an, a nine-month or so transition between uh, Simon and myself, to which I then was set free to run <laughs> my own business. What, uh, what year was that? How long ago was that? So that was um, about three years ago or, or so now. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so now uh, I went you know, fairly quickly from not knowing anything to needing to know how to run the ins and outs of the business, both on the architecture side and the construction side. And simultaneously, sort of two major things were happening when I uh, took over the business. I made a commitment to the, to the larger team that said that if I were to take over, I want to transition the business into an employee-owned cooperative. How, many, uh, how big was the team at the time? So the... The folks who had been with us long enough to even be considering whether there would be ownership or not, there was uh, four of them, but the larger team, including um, some folks at the time who were just on on the carpentry side, I think we were probably uh, 10 or 12 people at that time. Um, so not necessarily a small operation right. to just take on on my side, on the side of uh, finishing up my schooling. Yeah. Um, what an opportunity, though. I mean, but an amazing opportunity yeah. that I felt like I, I couldn't turn down, um, partly for my own sake, but also partly for the sake of, of the business. Uh, we, the, the fact that we were really testing the boundaries of what, where architecture and construction meet um, felt important for the industry, especially here in Boston. Um, and what, what it allowed us to do was to test the boundaries of uh, high performance and energy efficient buildings. And that was where a lot of our attention and press was coming from is we were pretty early adopters of the passive house standard and we were just doing it. We weren't holding back and no one was going to tell us we couldn't do it. Um, even though everyone was freaking out that it was too expensive or too complicated. It was, you know, we, we controlled enough of the pieces being the designer and the builder that we could make our clients comfortable that it was possible. And then the second transition that I was mentioning when I took over was to start doing real estate development, at which point uh, we now controlled a lot of the process. We were the client, we were the architect, and we were the builder. Um, and so that was our first development project was happening in the midst of the transition from Simon to myself. And then we've continued on since running essentially full speed in our our architecture, construction, and real estate development companies. Um, and uh, part of the sort of strange process that I went through resulted in the fact that I'm actually not a licensed architect um, and have essentially worked almost no hours under a licensed architect. Um, and so I couldn't, couldn't get my um, license if I wanted to right now because I haven't worked those hours. Um, there's no one to sign off because I'm the guy who would sign off for it right, currently. Right. Um, though it is the case that we um, we have had a licensed architect in-house now for about a year 
and um, we've made that transition as we want to expand the business um, to focus on uh, potentially larger scale architecture, which is a limiting factor for the design build world. And that's something that we realized is uh, to scale up architecture doesn't take a significantly larger staff. To scale up construction takes a very different company uh, to, to start to scale. Um, and so currently we don't feel like we want to scale our construction arm to match the way in which we want to scale on the architecture arm. And so there's some transitions there, one of which was it being very important that we now have a licensed architect because we're not just doing the one to three families anymore. We're, we're, we're making our way into larger buildings. So. Now, are you doing client services as well on the architecture side? We do. Uh, we do client services uh, mixed in with our development work. It's not as often that we're doing client work that just ends at the architecture. Often it results in them wanting to, us to build it. Right. Um, though that's another reason that we're we're trying to grow the architecture arm of the business is that we could take on work that isn't just local anymore. We can expand geographically, um, at which point we would more likely be doing more and more just architecture um, and not expanding into the build. Um, though we are, we're actually working with um, another business called Homebuilt, uh, which is um, sort of a, um, a CNC-based um, kit home uh, company and we're trying to collaborate with them such that we potentially have a way of doing architecture in slightly wider geographic location um, for client and uh, reduce the construction costs through some of the innovations that Homebuilt's working on and have a, a faster construction phase somewhere else so we might be able to uh, for example go into some place in northern Maine where I'm not going to send my whole crew four hours away, but I could send a project manager for two months maybe and find a local crew to assemble a kit and it's still our design. So things like that, we're, yeah. we're working to innovate so that we can expand and those are largely based on we're expanding the architecture company purposefully um, instead of just having it be haphazard or working backwards from getting construction and then we have some architecture. Um, Though currently and in the coming year, a lot of our work is specifically coming out of our, our real estate development. Uh, and I think that largely has to do with the fact that just the Boston real estate market is still doing well and we're trying to capitalize on that uh, yeah. while we can. So, so the architecture side, you want to scale, but scaling that means to basically get more work. You can do a, a, lot, of, a lot more work with the same amount of people you'll eventually have to hire some more people, sure. but, but not like the side of the construction side. So to scale the construction side, you actually have to have people building. And so in order to con have more construction projects, you have to have more people. And so that gets, you know, huge overhead, big pro you know, big company. Right. Um, and that's something you don't want to do. Right. And so you're looking for a way to continue to grow, uh, nationally without having to grow a giant company. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, that's definitely right. Um, okay, and so you're doing that by doing development because development you can you can control the process, but not necessarily be the one that's doing the construction work yourself. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons that we're doing development work. Uh, another is uh, the, what I mentioned, just that we have control such that we can 
we can sort of test different things in the market. So yeah. um, all of our development projects are at least meeting the Bassett House standard, and, and most of them now are um, are being designed to be zero net energy or zero, or positive um, energy at the end of the project. Now, some of that relies on whether the client puts solar in and all sorts of other questions because it makes sense for them to capitalize that, not us. Um, but we're compare, compared to other developers who we have collaborated with in the past, it's become very apparent to us that unless your mindset is that you want to be testing these things, you're not going to because you have to convince a whole lot of people that it's a good idea. Um, even if you already believe it, <laughs> and so right. it's just it's just easier uh, to have the architect, the builder, and the developer all on the same page already, because there's still a lot of people to convince, even once they're already on board. Right. So you can do development. You could pretty you could do it like a case study, where you design and build these. Show show your market that it that it can work. Have exactly. a model to show show an example of it, um, and why it's beneficial, and then be able to more easily convince the architecture side, the client services side, that this is the way it should be done. Yeah, that's exactly it. When you do, when you're, when you're talking about passive house, are you, are you promoting that and marketing that as a, as an additional piece, as an option, or is it just the way place Taylor does work? And this is when you work with us, this is how it's built. Which way are you approaching that? Oh, that's just the way we do it. We, we won't do anything less than that. Okay. Um, yeah, essentially since, since the company started, and this is kind of uh, a funny thing for me, but I've never built a standard construction house in my career. We've we've only done high performance houses, um, which is great, but it's also sometimes can be tricky when people ask me to compare things to standard construction. I don't really have a good sense of of how that goes. Uh, I mean, I do based off of understanding the industry, but I don't have uh, the physical carpentry experience of having having built something that way. Um, and so it literally is even in our contracts. It says, if you're hiring us, we will hit these standards. If you don't want to do that, you shouldn't hire us. Right. Uh, so that's, that's part of your brand. It is a very large part of our brand. I'd say so two, there's really two things which we largely focus on in our brand. One is that we build high-performance housing. We've been doing it for nine years or so. And at least with Passive House, that's, that's a pretty long time in this country. Um, and the second being that we have integrated services. Even if you don't want to hire Place Taylor for your construction or to do real estate development, it's still helpful to have the architect really understand the built environment and really understand its impact on the real estate development side. Even if it's just a homeowner who's not interested in real estate development, the number of times that I've I've found myself talking to a client and just giving them feedback on how the the current investment they're making in the construction of their home affects the longer term real estate um, impacts for them in resale is a value that I I can bring and our team can bring um, that you might not have otherwise if you're just focused on 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 just the architecture piece of this this larger industry or puzzle. Yeah. I mean, your website looks great. It's clear. It's very well branded. Um, talk. Let's talk about brand a little bit more. Let's get deeper into that. How important is building the brand of Place Taylor to accomplishing what you want to accomplish? 
I think it's huge. I mean, it's been a large part of my focus for um, the last few years when I took over the business. We had a, a pretty good brand, actually, and that was part of what I was buying when I took over the business was the fact that um, maybe not in the, the greater Boston world, but definitely within the um, high-performance construction scene, we, we, were, we were known as sort of the innovator, scrappy guys in the urban setting who you know, didn't really care what anyone said and we're going to make it happen. And, right. and, and what, I, you just I, said, what you just said right there is, is a big part of your brand. Right? It absolutely and, is. And so when a lot, a lot of times, um, I'm, the reason I want to get into this is because people who are listening, sometimes when you hear brand, you think, okay, a logo or maybe even the way the website looks. But what you're talking about is what the perception people have of you, the story yeah. that you're telling people. It, it Storytelling, I mean, that storytelling goes back further into my sort of my history. I, I grew up doing some storytelling and then have continued to and uh, actually as a performance style and so it's become very um, rooted in all of the work that I do and yeah the the brand itself even the logo needs to represent we're, we're those guys who are just going to make it happen and I and I think it does that you know the, the place Taylor the name itself is mm-hmm. is is um, I think indicative of that the fact that we're, we do a little bit of the sort of bold branding with orange. We were a little bit uh, snarky even in a lot of our commentary on our on our website. Um, and it's clear that we're trying to keep up with the times, with the, the videos on the front of our yep. website that are, are playful and fun. And we want the experience with Place Taylor to just be an enjoyable one. It is a very difficult thing for, for especially homeowner clients Designing and building a house is a big step for them, and we want to make that fun. And part of what our brand is is join the cool kids club, um, and to live in a passive house, to live in a high, uh, a modern design, to live in a beautiful neighborhood in the city, and to work with these cool guys is going to make your life better in the ways that you want it to be, and 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 that's a hard thing to do and you only get one shot at it in your life and and we don't feel like you should take it too seriously but realize that it's it is a serious topic and and so that's the that's the brand that we've worked on um and in terms of working on it when I took over the business I was I was still trying to pull off the model of um working part-time in the field, part-time in the office. Um, and that was just core to our mission. Everybody worked in the field. Everyone was swinging a hammer. Um, and I love that. I mean, I, I, it was really sort of part of what got me up every day is that I, I knew I could be switching back and forth between the, um, the different pieces of fun that were to be had. Uh, but it became really clear that we, we just we had to put our heads down and really get the business set up branding we needed to get our our books in order we needed to have time tracking in place we needed contracts worked out and like we were just too scrappy before um we started to make this transition after i took over and we created a a great business with some intrigue but we weren't really running a business yet um and so i took i sacrificed the field and 
and put my head down in the office, um, actually doing very little design work myself, but largely the stuff that you know we're talking about here. How are people going to know who we are um, it, when they find us, and and when we reach out to people? Which is when we're leading the projects by doing real estate development. Um, it's often they don't need to find us. I need to find them, and then they need to be convinced once they see us that this is a good idea. Uh, yeah, it, it, I love what you're talking about because that that is the message. The, the thing that you just said about how you had to sacrifice the thing you love in order to do the thing that you had to do in order for this business to thrive is a very, very important message. It's, it's, I, I talk about it in terms of profit, then art. Mm-hmm. It's something I say all the time that you need to focus on, on building a business that's profitable so then you can go create amazing works of architecture. Yeah. And I'd, I'd add one to that saying once I made that sort of shift in mindset from leaving, leaving the carpentry out of it, what I was able to do was apply some of that uh, passion and craft and even creativity to the creation of the business itself. And this is actually how this is largely how I talk about it is the creative process that we learn as architects in making a building really can apply very directly to the creation of a business if you're willing to let it. And I think a lot of people let their fear of numbers and business get in the way of enjoying that process. And the truth is some of my best days are spent six hours in front of a spreadsheet running our business budgeting because it, it just sets up. What are we going to be able to do this year if we do this well? And and it's exciting because we do some exciting and fun things. Like the fact that we get to budget in our our in-house events, which are parties that we throw in when we're halfway through building a house and invite the whole community. Like it, you don't just get that if you don't plan for it. You've got to budget it in. And as soon as you budget it in, now it's going to happen and you can run that piece of your business. Um, and so it, it, it can be a fun process actually. And it also can lead to now this is three years since then, and I do get back in the field sometimes because right. that's right. what I want to do, and that's what we've decided as a team, and I've been able to help lead other people. I have an amazing team that I'm working with who has can do all of the things that I have been doing, and so it's just a matter of us coordinating, and then I, I get in the field, so yeah. that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, that's that's the then art part. Exactly. Right. Sure. You exactly. do get to do the art. You just <laughs> right. have to be patient, and you yeah. have to you have to let you have to take care of the things that you need to take care of in order to put right. the system and systems into place right. to build the brand, to build a strong team, to build the systems that you need, and then that'll all start working, and it'll start humming, and everybody will be doing what they're supposed to be doing. Then you can go back to doing what you love to do. Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to FreshBooks for their support as a platform sponsor of Entree Architect. Because as a platform sponsor, FreshBooks has provided funding and support for our overall mission here at Entree Architect. They recognize the need for small firms like us to build better businesses in order to be better architects. FreshBooks is the easy-to-use accounting software designed to help us small firm owners get organized, save time, and get paid faster. It takes care of invoicing, expense tracking, estimating, reporting, and it all happens out on the cloud so you have access to your information from anywhere that you have access to the internet. And I use FreshBooks for my own small firm, 5Cat Studio, and my favorite feature of the FreshBooks software 
is sending my invoices by email and allowing my clients to pay by credit card. When FreshBooks says that you'll get paid faster, they're not kidding. With the convenience of clicking a button and paying by credit card, many of my clients pay now as soon as they receive their invoice. And for those clients who don't pay right away, FreshBooks automatically sends them a reminder of the balance due at an interval that I set. So once I send an invoice, I can go back to being an architect and I don't need to chase down any of my clients. And Tim Lee of FreshBooks will show you how easy it is to send invoices by email on our exclusive video series Tim and I produced exclusively for the Entree Architect community. Check out this free video series at entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo. There's no catch. There's no email. It's completely free. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo and you will get the videos right away. There's three of them. Shows you everything you need to know about getting started. And then go to freshbooks.com slash architect, freshbooks.com slash architect and sign up for your free 30-day trial and give it a try. It's free. I suggest you just send one invoice and see what happens. That's how I got started. Just send one invoice to one client and see how it works. And when I did that and I got paid much faster than usual, I signed up for the rest of it and I set up my whole my whole account at FreshBooks. FreshBooks.com slash architect for your free 30-day trial. And be sure to enter Entree Architect into how did you hear about us section. It's a little bit more well-rounded and we get to choose that as, as leaders in our businesses. And um, I'm now one owner of four in, as part of the cooperative. Um, and all of the employees that we have are on a track to potentially become owners. And um, with the cooperative business model, it's a consensus-based business. So um, not every decision in the business is made on consensus, but the governance-based decisions are. So uh, we approve budgets together and we sort of make the larger are we going to continue to do development work kind of decisions? Uh, how are we expanding? Do we want to grow this or that? Uh, we make those all together. And one of them is, am I going to stay in the office full time? Right? <laughs> like, are we, do we want that to be an expense now that we have a website that works for us that can be updated fairly easily and we have people who can do that work and it's not all landing on me now? What do I want to do with the time that doesn't need to be creating the business that, 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 that has been filled in the last number of years. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's uh, when you, when you decided to go employee owned and that was your decision, right? That's what you said that, mm -hmm. that when you, if part of taking over in that transition was that you're going to be employee owned. Um, what, what were the steps that you had to take to, to do that? I mean, that, that's a pretty big transition, uh, yeah. especially for somebody who only has three years experience right out of school. You're like, Okay, now what? I was still I was still in school actually. I mean, yeah. for two of those right, years, right. I was still finishing up school. So, so how yeah. did you how did you know what to do? You know, I, this is one lesson that I've uh, I learned pretty early on is uh, the power of the internet. You know, <laughs> and this is part of what's happening right now. In fact, of this podcast right. is there's resources, amazing resources, uh, out there. And in addition to the internet, there's amazing people who are also resources who are out there and people love to help other people. And um, so in the process of deciding about the employee ownership, um, actually, uh, I, can, I can pin it to a, a, one specific trip that I took that is 
to visit South Mountain Company in Martha's Vineyard, uh, who runs a architecture and construction business and now solar business out there and is an employee-owned cooperative. They've been around for 40 or so years, 30 or so employee owners. And I went out there and I saw the way in which their business is structured and the potential value in employee ownership. And I literally came home that night and I said, all right, I'll take over the business. And in taking over this business, I'm committing to us transitioning to an employee-owned cooperative. Um, and so that was like the decision point. It was just, it was really based in inspiration. And I had done enough research then, you know, essentially my, my internet perusing of what is it actually going to take? Um, and it certainly didn't happen right away. It, it took two years, actually, because it was not the thing that needed to be focused on. I needed to get the rest of the business going and keep projects running and get the next project. And frankly, it didn't matter whether we were a co-op or not. We were going to be running the business the same way. And that's why I decided to transition to a cooperative was we were, tr- we were saying we were running this business cooperatively and getting input from everybody. And that was from day one. It was, it was very collaborative, which I think is partly why I was hired was it doesn't, because we're doing this together, it doesn't matter that you don't have all of the skills yet uh, because we can all help each other where we have weaknesses and strengths. Um, and I happen to have strengths in coordinating people and dealing with teams and less in, at that time, in architecture and construction, which is quickly why, why I quickly became project manager because that's a largely amount dealing with people and coordinating teams. And so I ended up there. And then now as the strategic director, I'm not only um, dealing with people, but I'm connecting different teams. So I sort of am overseeing the architecture with the construction and the development pieces of it and all of that integration, which becomes, I think, holistically united when you look at it in the frame of the employee ownership. Now, not only are we um, in the day-to-day work working collaboratively, but we're actually committed to that enough to say that we will have uh, equal profit share, we'll have equal vote, and we'll have a consensus-based employee um, business that is open to anyone that we hire into this business. We have a three-year vesting period, so it means you have to commit to us for three years at least um, before you can come in as an owner, and that's tough. This is a very transient um, city in the very least. People come here, they do their schooling, and they often leave. Um, And so, um, and in the carpentry world, it's even more transient. They're used to working places for six months at a time until the season ends and then they go to the next job. And so the people who are, who really want to be here are clearly committed to the business and, and then we want to be committed to them. And we think employee ownership is a way of doing that. Yeah. It's such a great model for that to, to incentivize, you know, young architects and contractors to come in and, and work towards that opportunity to be an, an owner so they yeah. don't just come in they get tired or when or when they do get tired of it and it's, it's frustrating and they're struggling at that moment where you, they would typically just pick up and go somewhere else because it got hard right they look at the opportunity before them and they say no i'm going to push through this and stay with this because look right. at what what's going to be uh happening at the end and then once you are an owner then you really have an incentive to build the business and stay and grow with this forever and never really go anywhere because now it's part of it's yours. It's part of something right. you've you've designed and built and uh, and are part of. So it's a great model. 
and that, that's been exciting for for us to see now that we've had we have these four owners and a few others who are in conversation about are also coming on who have been here for three years um, is is what is the dreaming once you're in the ownership position where do you want to see it go and um, for a few of us it's you know what is the next stage for place Taylor where are we going because we, we are business builders and um, we don't want to just maintain where we are. And it's not just about expanding the architecture arm and that would be satisfying. It's what is the next thing we're going to test in this industry because Passive House is here, we've got it, people just need to pick it up because it's coming. And that's not what we need to be testing anymore. It's There's other things. In the business model, that's not what we need to be testing. We've tested the, the employee ownership. We've, you know, there's all sorts of things that we've tested along the ways. Uh, and what's exciting now is what are the ne- what's the next round of things that we're going to be testing. Um, and some of that is geographic boundaries. Some of it's sort of technological, this stuff that we're talking about. How do we build kit homes cheaper, other places, getting costs down. And and some of it for me, some of the work that I'm doing um, in the strategic side of the business is, is thinking about uh, the system at even a larger uh, scale. So we've talked about now we, we have a lot of control because we're doing development architecture and build, but what's the next layer out? Um, for us, I'm thinking about material acquisition. So where do our materials actually come from and should that be part of our business? All the way back to, um, and this this has been exciting research for me to do, what happens if we actually own a piece of land where we do our own logging and then we, we own our own mill where we do our own milling and then we attach it to the CNC machine and then we don't have to do any cutting on site? Like, Let's actually zoom out and think about how our buildings go together. And I think it's the fact that our business looks at all of those things allows us to zoom in and out from this morning. I was at a meeting where we were figuring out how to do the architectural detailing of the front deck on a two family home that we're building. And then I can zoom out and at the end of the day, be thinking about how systematically can we be approaching sustainability and regenerative design, um, and in that logic, realizing that what might actually be best is for us to be doing our own um, uh, sustainable forestry services in-house. And now that might take 10 or 20 years, yeah. and we maybe don't actually want to do it, but it's the kind of thinking that's fun to be had when you are an owner and you realize, all right, you can do that. We just have to all agree to do it, and we have to find the money, and, and those are things that we know how to do. And yeah. so that's that's just – it's been fun. I I love your blue sky thinking. I love that there's no limits. Once you you know once you have your own business and you're making the decisions, you literally have no limits. You can go where you want to go, or at least dream about going where you want to go. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I love the enthusiasm you have. When when I I I want to remind the people who are listening that that's why focusing on the business and building a business that works is is as much fun as designing architecture. That you can do that. You can design what your business becomes. And yeah. as long as you can focus on that and you develop it, it can become what you want it to become. What are some of the ways that you're making some of those decisions? So you have a team and you have multiple owners. How is, how is that dream, uh, dream making happening? How are you communi- <laughs> doing that communication? And yeah. then how are you deciding on what happens and which ones are you going to go, go, for, go forward with? So... Uh, each decision is is sort of handled in different ways, and we have uh, the equivalent of a decision tree. So, if it's a management based decision, it doesn't necessarily have to come back to the cooperative. If it's a uh, 
sort of longer term business strategy decision, um, it does have to come back to the actual co-owners. And in many cases, it's not just coming to the owners because we feel like it's going to impact the whole company. Even if you're not an owner, we often want to get some sense of whether it's the direction that they would be interested in. So, so really down to, you know, carpenters and laborers and everyone that is involved in the company. Um, but the decision-making process is, so for some of these bigger dreaming sort of uh, systems level thinking about the industry, the way it's currently set up is, you know, whoever wants to have this idea or dream has the idea or dream and we as a co-op decide how much time we're willing to allot to it. Say, all right, it's it's good for you to spend an hour a week looking into new CNC technology or this collaboration that we have with Homebuilt. We say, all right, we're budgeting in X amount of overhead so that um, me and one of our other employees can really dig into what, what the budget um, cost estimating would be comparatively to standard construction uh, with the realization that a lot of these ideas may just flop, but unless you test them, you're not going to know if it flops. And part of, and this ties back to the brand of Place Taylor, Place Taylor wants to be the brand that's trying things first. And so if we wait till someone else has done it, we already aren't following our brand. And so we have to invest in doing these things that maybe seem crazy or even just bad ideas um, because that's who we are. And that we, we get work because we are who we are which means that it's not just an empty investment in something. It's actually when we say we're going to work on um, testing the next boundary of whatever it is we're testing, it's, it can be chalked up to a marketing budget. And, and it's not right. exactly how it lands in our, in our budgeting, but, uh, but it could be if that's how you wanted to look at it. Um, because I, even just being able to say that we're thinking about these things and talking about these things even if they never happen, is already part of the brand. I mean, right now I'm, I'm effectively branding here as we talk by saying that this is the stuff we think about. Right. Um, and that's almost as important as whether I ever buy a piece of logging land and log it, right? <laughs> uh, and so the decisions have two, they're sort of twofold. One is what's the value in us exploring this? And then the more difficult decision is if it seems like a good idea, What's the value in us actually digging in, spending a whole lot more time in making it happen, and shifting some of our our actual dollars and our budget to it, our dollars from investors, and that's often where things get get a little bit tricky because uh, the technically our development business is a different business; it's run as a different LLC, as many developments are, and the different owners can opt in or opt out on each project basis depending on their personal. Um, uh, evaluation of the risk, um, which means that the development arms is not actually a cooperative, which is a very strategic, purposeful decision. So, and uh, so just each project is a separate LLC? It is, okay. yeah. And, and that's also because often we're bringing in outside people to be partners on these LLCs, and those people are investors or just guarantor backers or, or, or whatever, or even homeowners, potentially. Sometimes we're doing real estate development, teaming up with other homeowners. Um, and that's been some of the innovation too, is let's do non-traditional development projects that can reduce costs for buyers by mixing our understanding of the skill sets 
of combining investors with homeowners, with bankers and our own cash and, and just neighbors who want to invest and you know, sort of really understanding the intricacies of each piece has allowed us to do that. Um, but in terms of the actual decisions, once, once we decide we want to actually push something, it's really got to work its way through how it's going to impact the business itself on, on, on each level, the architecture, the construction, and the development arm. And the reason I say the investment side is often the uh, tricky one is if we don't put the money into real estate development, which we know can make us some returns, as we've proven, then we're pulling it out to put it into probably a far riskier endeavor. Um, and so uh, those conversations are, are had between between the, the co-owners and uh, and it's really a matter of, of navigating it as a team. And, and we've gotten pretty good. We have a whole sort of rule set about what consensus decision-making is um, and how it's done. And I think it is a an important role to run as a facilitator, which I am generally facilitating our meetings and not just thinking that the meeting is going to run itself, but preparing for a meeting and, and, and in preparing for the meeting, try to understand where we think people are going to end up and anticipate that so that we can actually have continue the conversation instead of having meetings, just be updates on where things are. The value of having people together is to really think through uh, what the, the true impacts on the business would be. And so just utilizing the time we have together, which is in a business that has so many moving parts as ours, yeah. it's, it's not common that we can all uh, sit down and have those meetings, but we, we, set them, we set them aside. You have to schedule them in and, and um, we, we get through it. So I think I answered your question. Yes, yeah, I, but it also, um, there is a document, right? There is a document that says this is how we do it. You know, to, this is yeah. how we're going to have these these meetings. This is how we're going to have these decisions made. Um, it, it's a it's a corporation, right? So you have a a court you have corporate documents, but then you probably also have partnership documents as well that says this is how the partnerships are set up and this is how we we run right. the company, right? Yeah. So the whole lot of paperwork, really. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and that's what the couple years transition was was us developing our bylaws as a cooperative. Um, we are we are technically a C corp operating as a cooperative, um, which means we can file our taxes as a cooperative, which is a whole other topic uh, for another podcast. But um, then we also have our operating agreement, and then in addition to that, we just have some general rules and guidelines about how we operate as a team. Which you know they don't come up that often, but yeah. it was something that was written together so that we can all agree on what consensus really means. Consensus is something that is very often misunderstood. Yeah. And it, people think that it means everyone has to agree, and that's not the case. It means that everyone has to um, be okay with moving forward with the same conclusion. Um, and we have detailed out what, what that means, what is the actual language we can use. Um, and it's not rote, it's not like you pick, which pick answer A, B, C, or D, right. but, but it's a good reference point, I think, for us. Um, and then we just have, uh, an important, very important document for us, one of the ones I use most, is just our minutes. We have a running digital minutes, which is anytime anyone has a meeting in the business, you put the agenda in and then the notes go within the agenda. And that's where our decisions are tracked. Um, 
which effectively it becomes our annual report when you need to report what decisions were made and that budgets were approved. It's all just there and we don't have to do anything else. What, uh, what tool are you using for that? So all, so all of our um, systems are run through Google Docs. Um, so the whole, the whole corporation basically is, the, is on the, Google Apps. The whole thing is Google Drive, yeah. yeah. And all of our word processing and all of our spreadsheet work is done through the Google tools. Um, you know, our email runs through through yeah. Google. I, I'm a I'm a Gmail, bit of a, yeah. a Google Google fan myself. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I know it's. I mean, the reference to the to the uh, percentage of time dedicated to experiments is also a Google uh, template. So I, yeah. could, I definitely see see that. Uh, I I see that you're a student of big successful companies, and uh, and because you're building one, you're building one. You're you're we're talking about. Uh, the infancy of a big company is really what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have big, big plans, and you are set up to to achieve those big plans, and so it's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been fun, and and, I, and we have got a, a great team of people here, which is what uh, I couldn't ask for anything more than that. Really. Yeah. Well, I'd I'd love to have you come back someday and talk more about the development part of things. Sure. Um, yeah. Because I know every time we talk about architect as developer, everybody's ears perk up, <laughs> right. and uh, and so we'll we'll have you come back and talk more in depth about that. Sure. Um, thank you, thank you for for being here today. I appreciate you uh, sharing your knowledge here with the Entree Architect podcast. Absolutely, it was fun. Thanks so much for having me. Complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode will be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 130. And if you haven't yet gained access to our digital course, Profit for Small Firm Architects, what are you waiting for? It will show you step-by-step how to structure a profitable architecture firm. And it's free. To download this course right now, go to entrearchitect.com slash free course. My name is Mark Arlapage. And I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris 
Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. And so for me, the the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.